Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, it's good to see all those bow ties. You all look very handsome. <laughs> uh, um, I will say, uh, Chuck was right that last year I was very, very surprised. This year, not so much since you printed in the bulletin. Um, <laughs> but um, but I, I will uh, just say that... Um, that uh, Kat and I and my children are very uh, thankful that the Lord brought us here and uh, that I get to be your pastor. I consider it a, a privilege uh, to be the pastor here at CTK. And so, um, so thank you for showing love and affection to us. Um, we love you. Uh, I love you. I have a friend who is preaching this morning in Houston at a church that he is applying for. And, um, and my prayer for him is that uh, his church there would be what y'all have been to us. Um, it's been uh, sweet to be with you for the last two years, and we uh, look forward to many, many years of bow ties in the future. So, <laughs> so we love y'all. Um, this morning, uh, we're looking at Psalm 145. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn there to Psalm 145. Uh, the passage is also printed in your order of service. You can follow along. This is a Psalm of David. It's an acrostic Psalm. So that means then the original Hebrew, every Hebrew line has, uh, begins with a successive Hebrew letter as it goes through the alphabet. It's, it's also the last Psalm of David in the Psalter. Um, so all the psalms were written over the course of time, and then an editor at some point took all the psalms and put them together and, and pieced it together in the way that we have it. Um, but, but many think that actually David, this isn't just the last psalm of David in our Psalter, but perhaps that this is actually the last psalm that David actually wrote, um, that these were his final words, his final song, his final song that he gave to the people of God, to the church. And if that is the case, then, then they are very fitting farewell words, because these are words that sing of God's praise and sing of the kingdom of God. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 145. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations." The Lord is faithful in all his works and kind in, excuse me, in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and give you that and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. 
The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our King, we know that the flowers fade and the grass will fall away, but your word, it endures forever. That your word that has been spoken, it endures forever. It will not fail and it will not fall away, but that it will succeed for the very purposes for which you sent it. And so we pray that this morning as we come to this portion of your word, that you would intervene and that you would allow your word coupled with your spirit to pierce our hearts, open our eyes, soften our hearts, lead us in the way that we are to go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to meet uh, a man who is a, a builder, a home builder in Atlanta, just outside of Atlanta. Uh, this man didn't just build homes um, like track houses or, or suburban neighborhoods. He built custom homes, and, and not just custom homes, but he built custom neighborhoods, neighborhoods that were built around a, a particular theme. Now, I forget some of the different themes that he built these neighborhoods around, but, but one of them I've always remembered. He built an equestrian neighborhood. So there were about 150 or so homes that he built into this neighborhood, and, and uh, every home was a little bit different. They were custom, but, but then also he had these different paths that went in and out of the, the different properties, and there were stables set up, so people could just wake up in the morning, and instead of getting your uh, morning cup of coffee, you could go for your morning ride, you know, because why not, right? So that's what he did. He built these sorts of homes, and they were beautiful. They were beautiful homes that he built, and, and a great deal of thought went into them, and he sought to bring beauty as well as practicality into these homes. He, he really saw himself as he did these neighborhoods as an artist, as an artist, as someone who, instead of using canvas and paint, the, the lots were his canvas, and the the doors and the driveways and the, the roofs were his paint. But of all the, the, the different works that he made, all the different things that he created, he saved his greatest masterpiece for himself. It was for his own home. This is where I met him. I was at his house for a retreat. And this house was tucked away from the, the main road. It was outside of Atlanta, and it, it was there. It backed up to a, a state forest, so no one would ever build behind him. It was a beautiful home. And he told us that when he was first conceiving of this house, he brought out his sons, and they stood in the middle of this plot of land that was just barren at the time. It was filled with weeds and bushes and trees, and, and you would never look at it and think, that is where I would build my master home. And there he stood with his boys, and they looked around, and he would point to his sons. He would go, he would go over there. That's where the driveway will meet the road, and, and that's where it's going to come in, and it's going to bend, and it's going to turn, because I'm going to have these different mounds of dirt all around it, and on the mounds are going to be bushes and trees, and, and you're going to bend around it. Can, can you see it, boys? And he would say, you'd turn, and you'd bend, and as you turn, you'd just get little glimpses of the house, but you'd never see the fullness of the house, because the, the mounds would obstruct your view. He'd, he'd keep bending it, and he'd say, can, can you see it? Can you imagine it? 
And after the last bend, finally the the mounds will give way and there will be a yard sprawling before you and you'll be able to take the entire home in view. Can you see it? And then he started describing the house. He said, this this is the size of the door. It's going to be oversized and this is the kind of material we're going to make and this is where the awnings are going to be and they're going to be copper awnings and, and as they green over time from oxidation, they'll actually start to match the green of the shutters. I'm thinking that far ahead, can you see it? And it's on the mound of this this land of this property and it rolls away and we'll walk out of our basement and we'll go on to our pool and the pool will give way to a yard and the yard will give way to a pond. You can't see the pond, but it's back there. It's hidden behind the trees and the weeds and the bushes. Boys, can you see it? And he kept pointing and turning them and inviting them to imagine what could be. What what he had in his mind of what would one day be. He was inviting them to imagine the way things would one day be on that plot of land. And in many ways, that's what the scriptures do to us. And that's what the psalm is doing to us. It is inviting us to imagine the way that things ought to be. It's inviting us to see the way that things should be, the way of God's kingdom. You see, that's what's at the very center of this psalm. In the middle of the psalm from verses 11 through 13, David speaks of God's kingdom four times. He says that we will speak of it, that David will make known the glory of it, that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He is inviting us. He's wanting us to see the nature of the kingdom of God and what it means for us as God's people to live in that kingdom. And so those are the two things I want us to see from this passage. What I want us to imagine and what I want us to invite to perceive. God's kingdom and God's kingdom people. So God's kingdom. Now when we think of kingdoms, when we think of lands, we think of these plots of land, right, that are, that are surrounded by borders or mountains or rivers, but God's kingdom is not like that. No, when the Old Testament speaks of the kingdom of God, it is often referring to God's rule. That where God's rule is, that's where his kingdom is. And what we see in this passage is that God's rule reflects God's character. Look at verses 8 eight and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Now, this is almost an exact quote of Exodus 34, which is one of the most cited portions of the Old Testament. You remember Exodus 34, Moses is up on the mountain, he's talking with God, God is giving the law to Moses, and as God is revealing himself to Moses, he passes before him and he calls out, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who God is. At the core of his character, this is who God is. He is a benevolent king, not over a portion of land, but over his entire universe, over the cosmos, over all of that he has created. God is a benevolent God. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What that tells us is that God's kingdom is in a kingdom where might makes right but it is a kingdom where steadfast love and grace and mercy reign. 
It rains because that is the very character of God. But God's grace and mercy is not only reflected in his character, it's also reflected in his actions. God's rule is reflected in his actions. We see this in verses 14 through 20. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowing down. You hear that? He's giving strength to the weak. Verse 15 and 16, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of everything. God is providing for those who are in need. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth, that God gives his very presence to his people, to those who are alone. Verse 19, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. He showers his people with love to preserve them. God is not deaf to the cry of the enslaved, but instead he rescues and delivers them. You see, what these are are God's acts of mercy and grace. God's character overflows into his actions to his people. Actions of salvation and love. What this means is that God's kingdom is not like earthly kingdoms. I mean, when we think of kings and kingdoms, right? What we think of is don't tread on me, right? We think, of, we think of tyranny and we think of bondage, but God's kingdom isn't like that. No. God's kingdom isn't a burden. It's a blessing. That's why David, the king of Israel, can say in verse 1, I will extol. Extol, kids, is just a, a big word to mean exalt. I will extol you, my God and king, and bless your name forever and ever. Now think about that. David, the king, is saying this. David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. Maybe, maybe it's not too far of a stretch to say that David was the greatest human king to ever reign in this earth. But regardless, he was the prototype Hebrew king. He is what all other kings would be modeled against. And yet this greatest of Hebrew kings says that it is good. It is blessing. It is right. For him to live under the authority of another, to live under God's kingship. God's kingdom is reflected in his actions, these actions of love and care, grace and mercy. But our world isn't like this, isn't it? It's actually very hard for us to imagine a kingdom like this because we've never fully experienced this. I mean, we look at the world around us, and and we can often feel like those sons at the beginning of the story, right? Those sons who are looking around, and all they see is weeds and bushes and barrenness. It's easy for us to look at the world and see that. I mean, we see wars and rumors of wars. We see children starving and women abducted and forced into sex trafficking, And we look at the world around us, and it can be easy for us to think grace, mercy, and love, they're not enduring, but evil and wickedness and hatred are. But we don't even have to look to the world. We can look closer to home. When children are diagnosed with disease, when those who promise to love us go back on their promise, or when darkness fills our hearts and melancholy begins to set in, It's easy to wonder, where is God's kingdom now? Where is grace and mercy and love? I mean, how can that be advancing when it feels like it is failing? 
We've asked those questions. You've asked them. I imagine those are the same questions that were running through the minds of Peter and John and Mary and Martha and and many of Jesus' followers when that bright midday sun gave way to the darkness. When they witnessed the righteous man wrongfully executed, when they saw the one that they had hoped in laid in a tomb, surely, they asked, has God's kingdom failed? But it's in those moments that we need passages like this. And it's in those times that we need to remember that the hope of the gospel of the kingdom is that in the midst of darkness, God's light shines. And that out of death comes resurrection. You see, that is what we need to be mindful of, that that the tomb could not hold Christ. And so those questions, those doubts, those concerns that they had, they, they flooded away when they saw the resurrected Savior. That the tomb could not contain him, that it could not hold him, that death had not been victorious over Christ, but Christ was victorious over death. That God's kingdom had not failed. That God's actions were stronger than the actions of this world. That no one could dethrone the king. Can you imagine that? A kingdom of rule that is characterized not by selfish ambition or the abuse of power, but by mercy and love and grace. That is the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of God, and that kingdom is unlike any other earthly kingdom. But the contrast doesn't end there. Because the kingdom of God, it never ends. Look at verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The kingdom of God is not bound by the life of man. This is a significant difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, because man's kingdoms, they fade. Civilizations and presidents, princes and cities, they rise, but they fall. But the kingdom of God is eternal. It will never fade. No one displaces God from his throne, and no one is able to defeat his advances. His dominion is forever. That's the assurance of this passage. That's what this passage confirms to us, that despite the miseries of this world, God's kingdom is forever. I mean, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He inaugurated it, and we are promised in Revelation chapter 11 that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It will never end. This is what we sing of when we sing the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen and amen. That is what we have assurance of. That the kingdom of our Christ is eternal. That the kingdom of God, even when we look and we may see weeds and bushes and barrenness, that the kingdom of God is not defeated because Christ is not defeated. The tomb is empty. He rose again and he sits on the right hand of God the Father. He sits on the throne of David, ruling and reigning forever. And when Christ rose in victory, we rose with him. So that we are no longer bound by sin, but now we are made his kingdom people. See, that's who you are. The kingdom people of God. But what does that mean? To be the kingdom people of God. 
Well, it means that we are saints. That's what David says in verse 10. All your saints shall bless you. Now, I know in our day, saint means like super spiritual person, right? Saint means that, that this is for the people who sell everything they have and live in the desert so they can get away from everyone else. Saint is for the person who, who goes into the farthest reaches of the globe to take the gospel to those who have never heard it. Saint is the holiest of holy people. Saint is the pastor. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thank you for laughing because you know it's not true. No. David's not talking about some super category of person. No, he's speaking of us. You know, in the New Testament, the most common word that is used for God's people is saint or holy one, it can be translated. That that's who you are. You're the saints of God at Christ the King Presbyterian Church. You're the saints. We're saints not because of what we've done. We're saints because of what he's done. I mean, those very things that we talked about earlier from verses 14 through 20 of what God has done, his actions, the upholding, the drawing near. Well, he does those things for us. I mean, those who fall down and, and bow down, those who are in need, those who call out, those who cry, those who are in need of salvation. Well, that's me. And it's you. That we are the ones who need God to intercede and to draw near, and to lift up, and to hear our cries. And he does. He does. He makes us his own, his daughters and his sons. He makes us his saints. And so as God's kingdom saints, we live as saints. As people who have been set apart, who are different. Who are different from the world. It means that we joyfully live under God's rule. We don't we don't try and, and get out from under it. We, we are thankful that he rules over us, that he leads and directs us. It means we live out the ethic of God's kingdom, that mercy and grace, goodness and love, they're not just exemplified in God's character, but they're exemplified in us, his saints, his people. That those become our defining qualities. What this means is that the contrasting nature of God's kingdom over and against the world isn't simply embodied in God, but it's embodied in us. God's kingdom doesn't just look different from the world, but we do. We do. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that your life would be so filled with love and grace? Mercy and kindness that when our neighbors and our coworkers interact with us and talk to us, that they would actually ask us about the hope that is in us. That's what Peter expects in 1 Peter. That, that we would be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us when we are asked. <laughs> the implications, we would be asked that our lives would be lived in such a way that no one could confuse us for the people of this world. But that we would actually be living in such a way that we must be un otherworldly kind of people. That we'd be kingdom people. Can you imagine that? I don't know where that needs to take place in your life. I'm not sure where love and grace, mercy and kindness, where truth and wisdom need to enter in. I'm not sure where that is, but, but maybe we begin by living as God's kingdom people by simply asking God, give us courage to love. 
God, give us compassion to be merciful. God, give us character to be gracious so that our hearts would be enticed, would be captured by the love of God and that that capturing would overflow into our actions, into our words, and into our relationships. Can you imagine that? It's hard for me to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine about myself because I know that I still have to cry out and I still have to bow down and yet that is exactly what God is doing in us. He is changing us into his kingdom people, to his saints. To be his kingdom people means that we live as his saints, but it also means that we live as his singers. Now I said sing, not sin. <laughs> not sinners, singers. And that's what David's doing, he's singing. In fact, that's what every psalm is. It's, it's a song intended to be sung by God's people. And what do we sing of? Look at verses 4 through 7. David says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. What do we sing? of God's righteousness. Verse 2, Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. We sing of God's mighty power, the greatness of his works. We sing of his wonderful name. We sing to God and we sing to one another. That's what David said in verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. In verse 11, he says, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds. One generation shall declare to the next the promises of God. One generation shall declare to the next the glories of God. One generation shall declare to the next the mighty actions of God. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? The children would hear our song and they would sing with us. This is amazing because it's giving us a vision of God's kingdom that extends beyond our own personal faith or individual salvation or even our own historical moment and it causes us to take the long view of the kingdom. A view commending love and grace from generation to generation to generation. A view of the kingdom that incorporates men and women and children into God's kingdom that we will never meet, that will never hear our voice, that they will never remember our names, and yet they will be the kingdom people of God. It's taking the long view. You know, this past week I was reading uh, that, that it took 23 generations to complete Canterbury Chapel in England. 23 generations. Men would sometimes spend their entire life working on a portico or on a vault or on a series of pillars. 23 generations, like, can, can we just be thankful? <laughs> Our building isn't going to take 23 generations. This helps put it into perspective on those days when I wonder why they're not working faster. <laughs> but you know what's amazing is that it was said as I was reading that the builders, as they neared their death, some of them would have their families bring them to the place in which they were working on, that pillar, that vault, that, that portico. And as they, they stood around that portion of the building that they had spent their entire life working on and building, the, 
the worker, the man, would take his tools and he would give them to his son. And in doing so, he was commending to the next generation the further progress of this place of worship. And in doing this, what this man was doing, what these workers were doing, what they were embodying was that they were part of something far greater than themselves. They understood that their songs of labor were not only for themselves, but for generations to come. And we see that in this psalm. I mean, think about it. David wrote this psalm generations and generations and generations ago. When David wrote these words, he could not have imagined people in America, in Roanoke, Virginia, at North Cross School at 10.30 in the morning singing this song. He couldn't have imagined it, and yet it still is commending the glory of God to generations after him. And it will continue to do so in generations to come. This is what this psalm is doing. One generation hearing the songs of the previous one. And so that means to be God's kingdom people, we sing about God to the next generation. That's why I love that we have people who are in their 80s and 90s and 50s and 60s and 30s and 40s and 10-year-olds and 10-month-olds singing the same songs. One generation commending the glory and goodness of God to the next. But kids, you know, you're, you're not just recipients of these com- commendations. You're not just simply to be recipients of these songs. You participate in that. And some of you are doing this. This is why I love that some of our youth, many of you maybe don't know this, but some of our youth volunteer with our children. And so Sunday mornings, they spend time with our children, commending the glory of God to the next generation. And some of our children are doing this with one another. This is one of the reasons why in summer Sunday school for our children, they're mixed up in ages. So we have 12-year-olds and 11-year-olds commending the glory of God to 6-year-olds. And 8-year-olds walking alongside 7-year-olds, one generation commending to another. Kids, this is for you as well. You're not simply recipients, but you are proclaimers of the great acts of God. That's what we are to be. A singing people. Singing about God to the next generation so that they would take up that song. And generations we cannot even dream about will sing as God's people. Will sing of God's kingdom. And friends, that's what we do here today. That's what we do here today. our, Our imaginations are to be captured. And our hearts are to be stirred with song. In singing the songs, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever. We sing the song that David sang, and generations will sing after us. We sing, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. We sing the song of God's kingdom. We sing as God's kingdom people from generation to generation until Christ returns and his kingdom will be forever. Amen. Father, we do thank you that you have given us songs to sing, that you have given us a vision of your kingdom, that you have shown us 
that your kingdom is not the kingdom of this world, but it is full of grace and mercy, love and kindness, truth and righteousness. And so we ask that as we see this kingdom coming and as we sing of it, that it would take root in our hearts, that our lives would be transformed, that the victory that Jesus has over death and hell and the grave, that that would be the victory that we would proclaim, that we too would live as your kingdom people in the midst of your kingdom so that others would know that your kingdom, it has and it is coming. Do this, Father, for this generation and for everyone to come. We pray in Christ's name and God's people said, Amen.